Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist at Cygnos. This is Season 1, Episode 12, Finding Your Weight Loss Superpower, an interview with best-selling author Nir Eyal. On today's episode, Nir and I will discuss his latest book, Indistractable. We'll talk about how you can find your superpower when it comes to weight loss by setting your intention and avoiding distraction. During this episode, Nir and I will discuss some great tips on exploring the triggers that distract you from your weight loss journey, a simple mantra to help with insomnia, time blocking your meals and meal prep, and setting the right mindset to follow through on your goals. Now on to the show. Welcome, everybody. We are thrilled to have Nir Eyal here. Nir is the best-selling author of Hooked and also Indistractable. He's taught as a lecturer in marketing at the Stanford School of Business and the Stanford Design School. And we're thrilled to have Nir as an advisor here at Cygnos. Nir, welcome to Body Signals. Thank you so much, Bill. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Great to have you. And one of the questions I love to ask authors um, whenever we have them is how you came up with the idea to write Indistractable. And mm-hmm. I should preface that with we know that you, you wrote a book for, before called Hooked, which was about building uh, these habit-forming apps. Um, but want to hear about Indistract- Indistractable and how that came up as, as the next book you wanted to write. Sure. So I write books, not when I have the answer, but when I'm looking for the answer. It's an amazing way to get an education in a field that that you want to explore. And, you know, with many problems in life, I either figure them out on my own, or uh, if that doesn't work, then I'll go read books on the topic. And typically, you know, nine times out of 10, somebody has dealt with the problem I'm dealing with, and they've wrote a good book about it. And, you know, books are probably the best ROI uh, you can get uh, for your money in terms of of knowledge per dollar. And of course, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here to a fellow author. So (laughs) you know that as well as I do. But every once in a while, you know, I'll I'll go, I'll, I'll read up on a topic, and I just won't find an answer that satisfies me. Um, and that was the case with both of my books. I was looking for a way to build habit forming products and I couldn't find such a book to teach me how to do that. And so I decided to explore the topic myself and that became a course I taught at Stanford for many years. And then eventually my first book hooked. And the same thing happened with uh, my second book, Indistractable, that I found I was very distracted in my life. I, uh, there was one particular instance where I was with my daughter one afternoon and we had this day plan, just, you know, some, some daddy daughter time. And I remember we had this activity book that uh, was full of different things that dads and daughters could do together, you know, make a paper airplane, a Sudoku puzzle. And, and one of the activities was to ask each other this question that if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I wish I could tell you what my daughter said, but I can't because in that moment, for whatever reason, I thought it was a good time to check whatever was on my phone. And by the time I looked up from my device, she was gone. She'd gotten the message that I was sending that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she left the room to go play with some toy outside. And that's when I know that I blew it. And uh, if I'm honest with you, Bill, it wasn't just with my daughter. It wasn't even just that one time. It would happen when I was at work. 
And I would say, okay, I'm definitely going to do my writing. I'm, I'm going to get this project done. I'm going to work on this thing on my to-do list, whatever the case might be. And then 30, 45 minutes later, I was doing something else. I wasn't doing the thing I said I was going to do. I was checking emails, scrolling the news, uh, Slack channels, uh, a million different things I was doing, except the thing I was said I was going to do. It would happen certainly with my health that I would say, okay, I'm definitely going to eat right today, or I'm definitely going to work out. And I wouldn't, and I didn't. And so if you asked me what superpower I wanted, I realized I just wanted the power to be indistractable, to stop getting in our own way. And I think this is our, our challenge of this age. I think it's the skill of the century because these days we all basically know what to do. Who doesn't basically know how to lose weight? Who doesn't basically know how to you know, be better at work? Who doesn't basically know how to have better relationships? We, we know this stuff. And if you don't know it, frankly, Google it. <laughs> all the information's out there. So the question is not lo- no longer the problem, I should say, is no longer that we don't know what to do. The problem is we don't know how to stop getting in our own way. We don't know how to stop getting distracted. And when I read books on the topic, they all basically said the same thing. Stop using your technology. Technology's melting your brain. Uh, put put away your gadgets. Stop it. And that's not very helpful (laughs) because I need it for my (laughs) livelihood. And these tools are great. And so I I wanted a practical approach. I wanted something that realized that, uh, you know, we we don't all have to be Luddites, that we can get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us if we can use these these tools for good. And so that's really what I wanted to explore. Uh, And I'm happy to say that after five years of research and writing that uh, becoming indistractable has changed every facet of my life. I have a better relationship with my family than ever before. I'm more productive at work. I'm in the best shape of my life at 43 years old. For the first time ever, I used to be clinically obese. Today, for the first time, I'm not saying this to brag, but I have I have a six-pack. <laughs> I've never had that before. And it's not because I'm at <laughs> And not a I'm, beer. You actually have yeah. some abs. Yes, you, exactly, yes, exactly. That's not, amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not, I'm the least athletic person you've ever met. I'm totally not coordinated. But uh, what I am is consistent. Now, I didn't used to be. Now I am consistent. So after years of exercising when I say I would, after years of eating right, as I said I would, now I, I enjoy the, the, the benefits. It's, it's such a great answer. And I love that you're trying to answer a question by writing this book. And I think so many of our listeners and myself can relate to being distracted. In fact, just after starting your book, I was sitting down to dinner with my wife. And uh, oftentimes she's she asks me questions, and I often don't know the answer to those questions. So I reach for my smartphone, and I start Googling the answer. And just one little thing I realized, I had heard somewhere else about, you know, it's okay to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And one little practice I picked up just from this idea of not being distracted, spending quality time with my, my wife over dinner, is to say, I don't know, so I'm not picking up that phone. Because then that would lead to something else that I saw on the page, which would lead to something else. And just like with your daughter, I would be completely distracted and, mm-hmm. and disconnected. And there are so many little things about this book that uh, we'll get into during this podcast. But I want to talk about the main structure of the book. I was hooked no pun intended, when I picked up the book right from the beginning by the subtitle, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. I am, if you were to put me in a category, I would say I'm hyper distractible. Mm. I'm like Doug the dog, if you've Mm. seen that. Squirrel. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's exactly it. Squirrel. (laughs) I mean, I, I have gone to the lengths 
in distraction of actually creating projects to distract me from other projects. <laughs> I'm writing my third book. I actually started writing the fourth book to distract me from the third book that I'm writing. <laughs> so I am hoping to get a lot out Why of it. Why do you create distractions? That is an excellent question. And let's segue right into that. One of the things that you mentioned in the book is stopping and taking a look internally as to why do you create these distractions. For me, when it comes to writing, I have this inner critic. I think a lot of us have an inner critic when we're writing. And I actually, my second book was uh, was Everyone's a Critic, all about uh, some of the critics that appeared in social media on Yelp, uh, some that appeared on Amazon to review my first book, that actually shut me down from writing. So, mm. I think one of the things that uh, causes me to distract myself is I don't want to face some of the, the things that my voice, my inner voice is saying. And um, you mentioned this about the concept of avoiding discomfort, which I think is really powerful. I, I yeah, Let me step back a sec before we get there. And, and that is that um, one thing I love about this book, and we'll have to get into some of the main constructs. One of them is, is that you describe traction and distraction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I've never thought about things like wellness and, and weight loss in terms of traction and distraction. But mm-hmm. the more I thought about it, the more applicable I thought this concept was. And that in terms of traction, I'm trying to lose weight and become more fit. And I have things that I'm doing to do that. I go to the gym and I work out on a treadmill at home and I'm trying to eat better. And I'm using Cygnos to monitor my blood sugar But then distractions come up. I think for all of us, for all of our listeners that are trying to lose weight, that you walk by the kitchen and there happens to be a bag of cookies. And maybe that's a distraction in this case. Am I describing that right in terms of the first construct that there are these two things? This is a super important concept uh, because I think it's a a term that we frequently don't understand. I certainly didn't really understand what that term meant, distraction. So let's start there. So if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? they'll tell you it's focus, but I don't think that's true. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction, that both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you're going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your goals, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So the reason that this dichotomy is so important is that I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word, and that one word is intent forethought, planning ahead. So that's actually several words, but (laughs) the key word there being intent. Um, And and what do I mean by that? That many times we assign certain behaviors as distractions uh, when they, we think it's the behavior itself. Oh, um, you know, watching Netflix is a distraction or playing video games. That's a distraction or whatever. You know, we, we label the, the behavior and we moralize it. And oftentimes we medicalize it and people say, oh, it's addictive. It's this and that rubbish. Come on. It's not that. What it is, is a distraction, meaning that if you choose to do those things, if you plan time to play video games, if you plan time to watch Netflix, if you plan time to eat a chocolate cake, it doesn't matter. If you planned it in advance with intent, with forethought, 
there's nothing wrong with it. It is by definition traction because it is what you plan to do with your time. Uh, and and in, in the case of, of diet, it's what you plan to do with your body. Now, the opposite of that is when it becomes something that is not done with intent. And many times, perfectly uh, healthy, otherwise healthy behaviors can become distractions. Let me give you an example. If you're sitting down with your family to have a meal, as you said, and you can't help but check your phone because you're uh, worried about what's going on at work, well, something that would otherwise be a, a good behavior in the workplace, checking workplace email, is now all of a sudden a distraction. Uh, if you're, you know, as I was with my daughter and, and, uh, now I'm doing something that's not with her, even though I planned to do that, now it becomes a distraction. So distraction, it's not about the action itself. It's about the intent to do that action. We see the same thing. I think it's very applicable, as you said, to, uh, uh, diet and health because, you know, when we vilify certain types of foods and we go through these phases, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very cyclical, uh, business, right? So today we're going to vilify carbs before that we vilified fat. And then before that it was cholesterol and we vilify like one food. And, and of course it's, it's, it's never that simple. Uh, you know, bodies like brains are, are complicated systems. Uh, and it's not never that one, uh, villain, uh, of a behavior, just like we see, you know, today we, we see people vilifying technology that, oh, social media is bad for you. Video games are bad for you. No, it's, it's about how we use them. And it's, particularly it's about whether we use them with intent. That's, that's a great answer. And I want to go back to the question you asked me about why I felt the need to create a project to distract me. And in, in the beginning of the book, you talk about confronting those distractions and looking at the root cause mm-hmm. of why we get distracted. If we take that to uh, a weight loss journey, for example, and we were talking before the show, the show you had your own weight loss journey. Mm-hmm. Um, wonder if you could just give us some insight as to what does that look like? I've heard that from so many other sources when we talk about weight loss that, okay, before you start on that journey, let's talk about how you got to where you are in the first place. Yeah. What were some of the distractions? So maybe you could just expound on that. Sure. Yeah. So this is a really, really important point. So if you can think in your mind's eye of two arrows, uh, pointing to the right and to the left. One signifies traction, one signifies distraction. And then you can think of two bisecting arrows pointing to the middle of that horizontal line of arrows. Uh, those represent your triggers, your external and your internal triggers. Okay, so external triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, anything in our outside environment. It can be the chocolate cake, it can be the unhealthy food that you're trying to avoid. Anything in your outside environment that prompts you to action right? That prompts you towards traction or distraction. Those are things outside of us. But it turns out that those are only 10% of the reason that we get distracted. The 10% of the time that we, we go off track, and studies have found this with our cell phones in particular, that we think we get distracted by our phones because, you know, p- some ping, ding, or ring. But it turns out that's only 10% of the time that people check their phones. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we get distracted, the other 90% of the time we check our phone, the other 90% of the time that we eat something that we later regret is not because of the external trigger, but rather is because of the internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, all of these uncomfortable sensations, these are the root causes of everything that we do, right? Many people have this misconception that motivation is about carrots and sticks, pain and pleasure. Jeremy Bentham said this, Sigmund Freud said this. It turns out that's wrong, at least from a neurological basis, that uh, carrots and sticks, pain and pleasure, 
That is not the root cause of motivation. The root of all human motivation is just one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. Everything you do, everything you do is about the desire to escape discomfort. This is called the homeostatic response. If you think about it physiologically, if you go outside and it's cold, well, the brain says, oh, that's not comfortable. You should put on a coat. But when you come back inside, now it says, oh, you're too hot. That's not comfortable. Take your jacket off. If you are hungry, you feel hunger pangs, so you eat. And if you're too full, oh, that doesn't feel good. Now you feel stuffed, you stop eating. Uh, if you think about the products we use, right? If you're feeling, you know, uh, uh, lonely, check Facebook. If you're uncertain, you Google. If you're bored, oh, lots of solutions to boredom, right? Let's uh, check stock prices, sports scores, Reddit, uh, the news. Let's worry about somebody's problems 5,000 miles away so we don't have to think about what we're feeling right now. And so even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, right? Don't, don't we say, oh, don't we do things because we want to feel good? We want to feel pleasure? Well, yes, but the way the brain prompts us to go get that thing is by creating discomfort. It's by creating wanting, craving, desire, lusting. All those things are psychologically destabilizing. So physiologically, we know this to be obvious, right? We do everything we do because we want to go get that thing. We want to, uh, you know, regulate our, our bodies through homeostasis. We'll put on the coat, we'll eat something. And of course, psychologically, this is also true. So from a, a distraction perspective, what, the, what this means, therefore, is that if all human desire, all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management, and I would say weight management, is about pain management. It's fundamentally about pain management. I'll tell you, the reason that I was obese was not because McDonald's <laughs> makes delicious food. I'd love to blame the fast food companies. Oh, it's the fast food industry. How dare they make delicious food, <laughs> right? Which is what you hear a lot of people right. saying, right? Like, how dare you, fast right. food industry? You made Cheetos, and I like them. Shame on you <laughs> for making good things. Shame on right. you, Krispy Kreme, for making donuts. Shame on you, Netflix, for making interesting shows I want to watch. So it's your fault, not mine. But of course, that's not true. That's not true. Distraction has always been with us. Uh, the Greek philosopher Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago, right? He called it akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interest. Distraction has always been with us and will always be with us. But the root cause of it is not the vast majority of time what is happening outside of us. It's what's happening inside of us. I was obese, not because I was hungry, but because I was looking to fill an emotional need. I would eat when I was bored. I would eat when I was lonely. I would eat when I was feeling guilty about how much I had eaten. That's why I was overeating. Uh, and so, so it's very important that we, we have to be introspective. We have to understand what are our internal triggers and learn to master them or they become our masters. I completely relate to the boredom piece of overeating. I, I went through my own weight loss journey and uh, you, you had an example in your book that was so illustrative of the power of, of boredom uh, in that uh, experiment about the machine in the room where um, research subjects could choose to shock themselves, painful shock. Maybe yeah. you could tell us a little bit about that experiment. Sure. So this was a study by, done by uh, Wilson et al. at uh, Harvard. And uh, uh, he found that uh, in this study, he took test subjects, he put them in a room. And he said, look, you don't have to do anything. Okay, we're going to come back and get you. But just sit in this room, and we want you to put on this, this band, this like bracelet on your arm. And so you know, this bracelet will administer a painful electrical shock. They told people it will hurt. If you push this button, you're going to get the shock on your arm. Okay? Just so you know. You don't have to push the button, but we're going to come back in just a few minutes. Just sit here. 
We'll be right back. Two-thirds of men and one-third of women administered what they knew would be a painful electrical shock to their arm to escape the boredom of sitting there and waiting for the, the study proctor to come back. That we are allergic to boredom. And we always have been. This is not a new phenomenon. You know, people mm-hmm. say, oh, our attention spans are shortening. That's not true. The studies show that that's not the case at all. In fact, the attention spans are getting better. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, but we still hate boredom. As a species, we can't stand it. And so, and, and that was evolutionarily beneficial, right? You can imagine that a, uh, a species that is not bored, right? Imagine if Homo sapiens uh, had evolved to just be contented. To just be, you know, perfect uh, nirvana all the time. Everything's cool. Everything's hip. Well, that's a species that would not have created and invented. And and it is our disquietude. It is that discomfort. It is that angst that we feel that gets us to do stuff, to create, to invent, to improve the world is spurred by this desire to escape discomfort, whether that's boredom, whether that's anxiety, whatever the case might be. So it's a very evolutionarily beneficial trait. We don't want to, you know, you, you, many people's first instinct when they feel uh, boredom, stress, anxiety, they tell themselves, don't feel that, right? Uh, and that's exactly what you want to not do because that tends to lead to rumination, which makes the problem worse. What you want to do is to learn how to uh, channel that discomfort, how to use it to pull you towards traction rather than into distraction. I want to give another great example in the book. This is this is a very small little example, but this book has just a treasure trove of these little examples. And this is a life changer for me. So I've been struggling with insomnia. Mm. And I think after I've read the book, one of the things I'm starting to recognize is that I've done so many different things to ad- address insomnia. I have no trouble getting to sleep, but I'll wake up at two in the morning and I can't get back to sleep. I'm measuring my sleep. I'm doing meditation before sleep, hypnosis. I've got magnesium. I've got all sorts of supplements I'm trying. And in the book, you described the same problem that I had, and you had a simple mantra of the body will take what the body needs, I think is what you said. Maybe I'm paraphrasing yeah, the, the body phrase. body gets what the body needs, exactly. Body gets what the body needs. I, if, uh, I would tried that, that the other night. If if you let it. That's the one thing I would add to that. The body gets what the body needs if you let it. But but continue with your story. I'll, I'll, I'll... I guess I read between the lines that that, yeah. um, that was what you were saying. What happened when I started to repeat that phrase to myself at 2 in the morning the other night was I kind of all the pressure that I put on myself, which was, I think, my internal trigger that was causing this insomnia problem, all that pressure was gone. And like you had suggested, I, I opened a Kindle. It doesn't have a lot of blue light, so it's not going to really activate me and wake me up. And within a few minutes, I'm back to sleep. Beautiful. And it was as simple as that. It was as simple as figuring out what the trigger was. And for me, it was, it was paying too much attention and obsessing over this problem, which actually exacerbated the problem. If I could just let it go by repeating that mantra, I've addressed the trigger and I'm actually moving towards my traction in that case, which is better sleep. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. So yeah, you know, as I mentioned, everything I write about is, 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 is personally applicable. And I, and I struggle with this for, for years and I still have, you know, nights, I have the same problem where I'll get up at uh, 3am or so. Uh, and, and it wasn't, you know, and the reason it was happening and the more research I did into the problem it's not that that the sleep tracking uh, is is the is the optimal solution. In, in fact, many people now believe that it's all that sleep tracking that makes things worse because what it does is is it helps us 
continue to think about that problem as a problem, right? That the number one cause of insomnia is worry about insomnia, right? Now, some people really do have chemical imbalances or things that are going on. It's actually a very small percentage of people who suffer from insomnia suffer from that. It's much more likely the number one cause is the worry, the anxiety, the what we call rumination about the insomnia. It's, oh, if I don't get to sleep soon, I'm going to have a terrible day tomorrow. It's going to be shot. And, and all these problems that happened yesterday that I'm thinking about, and if I don't get to sleep soon, what's going to happen? And this is bad for my body. And everybody tells me that. And it's all that thinking about the fact that I'm not sleeping that makes us not sleep. And so it's exactly as you said. So this mantra of the body gets what the body needs if you let it. The body gets what the body needs if you let it. So repeating that mantra and of course, there's all kinds of other things you can do. There's breathing exercises. There's all kinds of things you can do. But just, I think it starts with not taking it so seriously, right? That here's what happens for, for, unless there is a real, you know, imbalance of some kind, which does happen, you know, certain medications can affect our sleep, et cetera. But for the vast majority of people, we're talking 99% of the population out there that has a sleepless night, uh, or not, it, what, what tends to happen is that if we just release ourselves from that pressure, we either fall asleep or the next night we get great sleep. <laughs> right that your body will self-adjust yeah. if you let it now what happens where where this doesn't work and the reason i add that little phrase and it's it is in the book but I, it's not all in one place the the what tends to happen is people skip that second part of if you let it so the body gets what the body needs but if you keep going to bed at midnight uh, and expect to be up at 6.30 in the morning, well, you may have a chronic deficit of sleep because you're not letting your body get the rest it needs, which of course means you need an earlier bedtime, <laughs> right? Uh, and so it's about letting your body get the sleep it needs. And many times if you just allow it to get that sleep it needs, sometimes you have a good night, sometimes you have a bad night, but the body will readjust. It'll get back to that homeostasis. We've talked numerous times about how Good night's sleep actually affects your blood sugar. Your body is so much better at metabolizing sugar when you've had a good night's sleep. I'm going to amend that recommendation because I might have actually built some obsession in part of our listenership and have you repeat that phrase that Nir has in Indistractable. The body will get what it needs if you let it. Right. Just right. keep which that going. Which doesn't and, de-emphasize the importance of, of good night's sleep. I think what that says is don't right. ups- if you're not getting the sleep, but you've let your body get the sleep, well, then it's out of your control, right? Just just be cool with it. But make sure you give your body the opportunity to get the rest it needs, which means you know planning a bedtime, getting to bed on time. That that's It's so funny. People will jump to, well, what supplements should I take? And you know what, 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 how should I track my sleep? And am I getting enough deep sleep and REM sleep and this sleep? Blah, 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 blah. How about just getting to bed on time? <laughs> like that is, you know, that's the 80-20 here. That is the highest leverage thing you can do is stop scrolling and go to bed. <laughs> yes. And it's been shown. There's been some studies we've talked about in the past that sleep consistency is uh, is really important to getting that good night's sleep, going to sleep, getting up at the same time. The more that you can build that consistency without obsessing over it is going to help your your sleep and help your your glucose levels that you as you look at your Cygnos app. One of the things that I, I think that, that was so important and so enlightening to me was that whole section of the book where you talk about becoming aware of your trigger. And I think some of us are operating on, on autopilot and we don't really realize those triggers are happening. Um, so that simple uh, line in your book 
suddenly just connected with me, but you also suggest that people start uh, logging some of the triggers that they noticed and and start to really um, drill down on on what the feeling, the sensation is when they get those triggers, which uh, I think is a great idea uh, as a, another step you can take to start to change uh, some of the behaviors that you want to change. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a really good quote by Poela Coelho who said a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. So many of us decide to be distractible, right? We keep complaining about the same things again and again. We keep getting distracted. How many times can we get distracted by Netflix? How many times can we get distracted by email? How many times can we get distracted by that chocolate cake before we say, okay, enough, you know, I'm not going to keep making this decision. I'm not going to keep making this mistake. And so how do we do that? It's back to forethought. It's back to intent. That uh, the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That's pretty much the, 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 the key takeaway from my five years of research is that there is no temptation that we can't overcome if we plan ahead. So if you wait to the last minute, they're going to get you right? If you think you are going to be able to resist the temptation of the chocolate cake on the fork, it's too late. It's on the way to your mouth. If you think you're going to resist the temptation of the cigarette when it's in your hand, you're fooling yourself. It's already in your hand. If you sleep next to your cell phone every night, of course, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning before you even say hello to your loved one because it's sitting right there. It's too late to wait to the last minute. You have to plan ahead. You have to take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. And if we do that, there is no distraction we can't overcome, but you cannot leave it to the last minute. So Nir, understanding not leaving it to the last minute, but what would you say to the person who's trying to lose weight that says, I'm just powerless over some of my vices. Uh, I see chocolate cake. I've got to eat it. Mm -hmm. So uh, all that talk sounds great, but how how do I overcome that irresistible urge to eat that cake? Yeah. So that, so what you said there, let's say, say that again, that you, you started what you just said with, uh, I am powerless, right? That's, right. That's, that's the source of the problem. <laughs> yes. So but you would be surprised how much, how many times I hear phrases like that. Oh, I'm not surprised at all. I, I used to say that all the time. Uh, if not in that form, I would say I'm addicted right? I'm, oh, come on. <laughs> right. Uh, this, this, we're not talking about heroin here. We're not, we're not, you know, injecting uh, chocolate cake into our veins. Come on. It's not, uh, this is not the same thing. Right. Uh, and, and uh, I think that's, there's a chapter in the book called reimagining your temperament. And we know that this has a huge impact on our behavior. I'll give you an example. There's a, there's a body of, of, of research uh, that was popularized a few years ago, called ego depletion. This a concept of ego depletion is still part of pop psychology. Many people will kind of toss it around. It's this idea that willpower is a limited resource, that you run out of willpower, that willpower is like a gas tank or charge in a battery. You spend it and then you're out of it. And even if you didn't know the term ego depletion, uh, if you're anything like I used to be, I would use this term to explain why after a hard day at work, I would come home and I would say, oh, I'm quote unquote spent right? Give me that pint of Ben and Jerry's. I'm going to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? Because I have no willpower left. And uh, for a while, there, there was actually some research that showed that this was the case, that this was a phenomenon that you could actually, uh, you know, observe in, in a lab setting until a group of researchers decided to replicate 
these studies. So what we do in the social sciences, when a study sounds a little too good to be true, we replicate the study. We run it again. And it turns out now, over after over a decade of, of, of trying to replicate these studies, we find that ego depletion is not real. That there is no such thing as this idea that you run out of willpower. It doesn't work like that. You don't run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank, except except in one group of people. So Carol Dweck at Stanford, she, she wrote a fantastic book. You might uh, recognize her name called Mindset. And she did this research that she found that, in fact, one group of people really do experience ego depletion. They really do run out of willpower like gas in a gas tank. Only one group of people. And those people, and only those people, are people who believed that willpower is a limited resource. So if you were the kind of person who believes that that is the case, that, oh, I have no more willpower, you act in accordance with that belief. But if you don't believe it, it doesn't exist. And we see this phenomenon over and over and over again. I'm powerless. I'm addicted. I'm uh, a Sagittarius. I'm a morning person. I'm a such and such, right? We see this all the time. And some of these labels, you know, like I don't want to minimize addiction in particular. Some people really, really are addicted. They really do have this pathology. It's about uh, one to 5% of the population, but it's a disease. It's a, it's a pathology. It's not something that, oh, I like it a lot, right? That doesn't mean you're addicted to it right? That you, you, we don't talk about epilepsy or Tourette's that way. Some people have the disease, but the vast majority of people do not. But the amount of people who label themselves as having this thing, that this, this temperament is fixed, there's nothing they can do about it. It's not that they can't do anything about it. It's that they believe there's nothing they can do about it. And so they don't even try and it becomes part of that scenario. And so that is the first thing is to reimagine that temperament uh, and, and, and ask yourself, is that temperament serving you or are you serving it? Because we can actually adopt labels that do help us. I'll give you some examples. So this comes from the research around the psychology of religion. That we know that when people label themselves, when they have a moniker, they become much more likely to act in accordance with that label. So when somebody says, oh, I'm a devout Muslim, okay? A devout Muslim doesn't drink alcohol, okay? It's not something that they have to fight with themselves over. That's just who they are. If someone says, I'm a vegetarian, Right? A vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I wonder if I should have a bacon sandwich for breakfast. No, they are vegetarian. It is who they are. So when you have an identity, when it becomes who you are, by the way, we see this in the health industry all the time. I am keto, right? I am this, I am that. That helps you. That moniker helps you stay on track. And so that's why I titled the book Indistractable. Indistractable is meant to sound like indestructible. It's that superpower, right? So you can call yourself indistractable, even if you're listening to this episode. It doesn't mean that you have to read the book and you know have some special qualification. Look, anybody who strives to do as they say they're going to do, to be honest with themselves as they are with others, that's the definition of being indistractable. The kind of person who strives to be as honest with themselves as they are with others. Because we all know we lie to ourselves all the time. We say we're going to do one thing, but we don't do it. Indistractable people, it's not that they never get distracted. Okay, we all get distracted from time to time. I still get distracted. The difference is that I don't let it happen again and again. Back to that Puella Coelho quote of a mistake repeated more than once as a decision. A distractible person keeps getting distracted again and again and again by the same things. An indistractable person says, oh, I saw what you did there. I got distracted the first time, but I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. I'm going to take steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow so that I control my attention, I control my life, and not all these distractions around me. I agree. And, and when I was reading that chapter, I was thinking about Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. And uh, 
even change some of my own language. Uh, I think you mentioned things like becoming a noun, like indistractable. I hear so many people say that um, when they're talking uh, to us about their weight loss journey, they say things like, I need to lose weight. Uh, I'm starting to change phrases like that to, I have decided to lose Mm -hmm. weight. Mm -hmm. I'm actually taking ownership of that. And I think the next step is actually then to turn it into a a, a noun. I'm, I'm indistractable in my pursuit of weight loss. This, this is my motivation. I want to just close with one other thing I found, I found so useful. And I I think um, we were almost on the same path as we were developing the Cygnos app. When I read the chapter about time blocking, Mm. Uh, something that just occurred to us as we as we were building the app, when we were giving people suggestions about things like eating mindfully, we told them essentially to time block their meals and time block their exercise. The exercise, I think people have been doing that, but you know, actually going onto your work calendar and putting in your times that you're going to be exercising. But take that one step further. A lot of us just kind of grab something to eat when we can. What what about being more mindful about it and time blocking your meals? Yeah, and, and, and time blocking perhaps the meal prep, right? That, exactly. So at yeah. the, so at the last minute, it's not we we have an option there. It's not oh I'm super hungry. I'm I'm hangry even right. I'm agitated. I've got all these internal triggers bubbling up inside me. I need food right now. I'm going to be less likely to grab something I later regret and more likely to eat the thing I said I was going to eat because I prepared it in advance. So back to this point of the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought by planning ahead, right? By knowing what it is you're going to eat and when you're going to eat it, uh, that that makes a huge impact in terms of your ability to follow through. Yeah, and to circle all the way back what you were saying in the beginning, the, the traction part of this is the things that we do with intent. So if you set the intent mm-hmm. to time block your meal prep, to time block your meal, that now this has become an important part of your day to nourish yourself versus something that you're going to do out of boredom or something you're going to do out of stress or some sort of other emotional driver to eating. Now, this is something I'm going to time block and recognize its importance in my day, I think is yeah. so important. Absolutely. And look, it doesn't have to be, it, it doesn't have to be something that everybody does. I want to, I want to make sure I emphasize here. People say, oh yeah, but I have obligations. I have this, I have that. Of course, we all do. The, the question is, what are your values? These things have to be based on our values. Vatru- values are attributes of the person you want to become. So we have to ask ourselves, how would the person I want to become spend their time? And so it's not up to me or you or anyone else to tell anyone what their values should be. But if part of your values are you know, taking care of your health, if part of your values are being fully present with your family, if it's you know, doing my best work, whatever the case might be, whatever your values are, you have to put those values on your calendar. I call it turning your values into time, right? We can, we can talk about these values, but if they're not in our calendar, we don't live them out. And so it, it has to be, take a place in our calendar. Well, I want to urge everyone to go out and buy Indistractable. We just scratched the surface of some of the things that are in this book. And like I mentioned, I have found so many really powerful insights in this book that I'm implementing. And I just uh, just read it this um, this past weekend. So uh, there's, there's a lot more I, I believe I can take out of this book. So, Nir, where can people uh, find out more about you? 
Thanks. Yeah. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. So that's, that's N-I-R. That's a great. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Great yeah. website name. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's what kids uh, used to make fun of my name when they say near and far. So now I use it to my advantage. So, <laughs> uh, so near and far, it's uh, again, N-I-R is uh, my first name. So nirandfar.com. And there's actually an 80 page workbook, a complimentary workbook that we couldn't fit into the final edition of the book because it got too big, but it's available for anyone, whether you buy the book or not, doesn't matter. And that's available at the website as well. Awesome. Nir, I want to thank you again for being on uh, Body Signals and we look forward to having you on again. Thank you so much, Bill. It's my pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on Body Signals. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Signos Health. And if you're interested in becoming a Cygnos member, go to cygnos.com on the web to request early access. Until next time.